0: Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited and my guest today is Tracy Allen, Chief Executive of Derbyshire Community Health Services NHS Foundation Trust. You can find her on Twitter at Tracy Allen DCHS. There's no e in Tracy. Tracy, welcome. <laughs> Hi. How did your day start?
1: Well, I'm not at work today. Um, slightly unusually for an NHS chief exec, I work uh, part-time, so it's my day off today. Um, so it started in a leisurely way, clearing up from a uh, wreath-making party that I hosted last night.
0: Okay, sounds very convivial. <laughs> have, have you always worked for the NHS?
1: Nearly always. I did the uh, NHS Graduate Management Training Scheme straight out of university and um, apart from a brief foray into academia, um, I've been there ever since, coming up to 30 years next year.
0: So would you like to tell me a bit more about your journey to Chief Executive?
1: Yeah, so the NHS run a really fantastic graduate management training scheme so and that gives you a really good grounding in all the different types of NHS provider organisations, uh, national policy work, etc. And then after that I've, I've worked in NHS trusts, so providing uh, services, mainly in uh, secondary care hospital trusts, but then the last 10 years I've been in the community um, establishing Derbyshire Community Health Services. Uh, in 2011 and being the chief exec there ever since.
0: So were you the founder chief exec of Derbyshire Community Health Services then? I, I was. Right, okay. You've just had a visit from the Care Quality Commission and you were rated as outstanding overall and outstanding for well-led. How did, how did you achieve that?
1: Well, it, it's, it's the combined efforts of all 4,000 of us that work in the organisation. I think it, it's, it's a combination of great people who want to do a great job a really clear set of shared values and a common purpose and we've worked hard on that we've had a very stable leadership team over the last few years Mm. um, and that's enabled us to work with uh, our colleagues right across the organisation to develop that shared purpose Um, and then a kind of I mean it sounds like management speak but a really golden thread that tries to connect the way we go about our jobs every day back to those common Uh, values and purpose and when the CQC came in that's what they said they saw everybody understood what we're there for what their role is Um, we've got a very open culture we work hard to make sure that we all feel supported and engaged in what we're doing and people really like being part of team DCHS.
0: In uh, the next episode of this podcast I'm planning to interview Professor Michael West, one of the authors of the uh, 2017 report from the King's Fund, Caring to Change, How Compassionate Leadership Can Stimulate Innovation in Healthcare. Has your own trust responded to that particular report? Is that something on your horizon?
1: Yeah so it it absolutely was. Um, I think we and and That report, Michael West, very clear about the different elements that make up compassionate leadership. And one of them is about a very clear purpose and those shared values. And we've built DCHS up from that uh, position. So I think we we felt we'd got that. the thing that really struck us was about within that framework, giving people the space and the time to think differently and innovate. The NHS is a really highly regulated sector There's a huge amount of telling people what you're doing, how well you're doing it, often based around things that we can measure, not necessarily the things that mean anything much to Mm. us as users of the service or the people providing it. And there is a risk that we certainly see still in our organisation that the work we do to make sure we understand what's going on and we can manage our regulatory responsibilities, assurance can squeeze out time for thinking about what matters to me, the person providing services to you, what matters to you, um, and actually giving people the time and the space to try things differently um, from their perspective rather than from the trust perspective, the NHS regulators' perspective. So we've been trying over the last couple of years to try and streamline that kind of assurance governance stuff. It still needs to be there we're accountable to the public, we're accountable to our communities, we're accountable to the taxpayer, but actually give people space and time and permission and confidence to try stuff out and to work from the perspective of the things that they and their patients are concerned with and feel are important.
0: Yeah and do you have any favourite examples of of innovation within the trust?
1: There's one really good one that, that we've been doing over the last uh, year or so, which is about um, introducing health coaching. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, it's, it's a way of having a, a conversation with a service user that really genuinely starts from the, their perspective. Mm. What matters to them, not what is the matter with them? So we took an area of a really big area of work that our community nurses do, which is around supporting people with leg ulcers, hugely debilitating, hugely painful, hugely expensive. And we weren't actually cracking, healing those people's leg ulcers as quickly as we would have liked. And often that is about concentrating on the physiological, medical side and not really thinking about what does all the advice we're giving these pe- people mean to how they're going to live their daily life? Yeah. If actually it's just not going to be practical to sit with your leg up for 11 out of every 12 hours, why are we just telling somebody every week that that's what they've got to do? So you, you, you introduce a set of skills and confidence in professionals to have a different conversation with somebody that tries to focus on the way they want to live their life, the, the things they're concerned about about their leg ulcer. And it, it's a kind of asset-based approach where are they coming from we've seen amazing results in terms of leg ulcers that had been there for 12 years healing average time to heal gone down that's made a difference to those people it's made a difference to our workload it's made a difference to cost Um, and we've also seen a benefit in that people are using those skills in the way they work with each other management leadership as well as with patients and service users so it's having a real difference in the conversations that we're having right through the organization
0: So I I suppose what you're doing is it feels like you're moving away a little bit from the patient as customer model to a model where you actually co-create health with the patient. It's a partnership. Yeah. Yeah, And
1: I think that's what our service, care services, the public sector has got to be able to do. All the evidence shows that if you can work in that partnership way that starts from where somebody is, not tries to fit them into your traditional service models, much less paternalistic, much more about them, their family, their community, we achieve what we call the quadruple aim. We, we, we hit that sweet spot where you're making a difference to their experience, you're making a positive difference to overall community health and wellbeing you're delivering best value and it's a really great experience for the professionals involved in working in that way.
0: Yeah so what I'm hearing from you is that there's also a change going on about the way that you work with staff within the trust as well. Yeah. It's not just about the patient patient GP relationship but it's also about the relationship between staff as well.
1: Yeah and I, I think that's it we are we're a big organisation, there's 4,000 of us, and today most of those people, my colleagues, are out in people's homes, in GP practices, in church halls, right across Derby City and Derbyshire, from New Mills down to Swadlincote. Now, a, a kind of hierarchical command and control, pro, even if that's what we wanted to do, it, it just doesn't work. You've mm. got to work on those shared values, the common purpose and trust that that binds people together with the right support, the right set of clarity of expectations and make people feel part of that collective endeavour. People aren't visible. You know, they, I, I can't just walk around the organisation. It takes me two and a half hours to get from one place at the top to the bottom. Um, so you need a completely different kind of management and leadership approach.
0: Yeah. Uh, is there any other aspects of, of your leadership philosophy that you know do you feel are important
1: i was thinking about that question i i don't think my leadership philosophy is that different from my philosophy about being a good human being really i think it's a people business it's a contact sport it's people that deliver these services it's all the interactions we've got policies and procedures yeah right it's actually the interactions between each one of us every day that determine how we're going to work and the quality of the services that we provide. And that, for me, is about being kind, being respectful, working as a team, feeling comfortable to bring your whole self to work. So I think just like being a human being in society, for me it's about being, trying to be really clear about who I am. What do I stand for? And how am I going to interact with others? It's it's about my impact on other people and and trying to get everybody in the organisation to think about that and the impact that every single interaction we're having has and how powerful it can be when we're all doing that in what we call the DCHS way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In our discussion prior to the show, you talked about culture. How would you characterise the culture you're trying to create at DCHS?
1: It builds on what I was just saying. Mm. I think it's really interesting, the evidence that the Care Quality Commission have built up from all their regulatory inspections is that one of the strongest correlations they see between the quality of outcomes for patients and service users is back to how people in an organisation feel that they are treated and how they feel about that organ- and particularly what we might call some of the most marginalised people mm. so within our organisation uh, people of black minority ethnic people with different sexuality from kind of heteronormal and so that is a really key driver of our culture is that not to make it too simplistic but um, looked after people look after people hurt people hurt people um so you know my vision the board's vision is that we have an organization where everybody feels cared for and supported because that is a critical element of them being able to care for and support each other and their patients so that that's the culture now that then you can unpack that that you've got to be open you've got to be transparent you've got to be okay with admitting when things are going wrong you've got to be able to show your vulnerability so there's a whole set of aspects to it but I think fundamentally it's a culture where everybody feels supported and engaged they understand what's expected of them and they truly trust and believe that we are all there to care for each other as well as to care for our patients.
0: Tremendous. Are there any challenges you (laughs) face in making that culture a reality though?
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's loads, and I don't want it to sound as though we've got it all cracked. I mean, we're a really big (laughs) organisation. It's not bad, but... um, This stuff is difficult. So on the one hand, you've got inexorable pressures within the NHS, rising demand, huge resource constraints, massive workforce challenges. Um, And that means that the pressure on all of us in my organisation, right across the NHS, is growing. You've also then got pressures around change, uh, the way we deliver services now is not the way we're going to do it in the future. We talked earlier about that kind of partnership model with with people in places. That's a very different philosophy from that that some of my um, clinical colleagues have been trained in. So that's that's uh, challenging. And then you've got a vast range of, of of people in leadership roles, and some people find it easier. They lack the experience, they lack the confidence, Uh, it's multifactorial, I think, about being able to work in an ambiguous, empowering way. It's easier to seek comfort from policies and procedures, and this is what we're being asked to do, and I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And so that's a a constant challenge for us, is about trying to develop our leadership uh, culture and capability and about supporting people with all those challenges, and the, just the emotional burden of providing healthcare at the same time.
0: Yeah, within the context of a system that's under true Huge pressure. pressure, yeah. yeah. Would you like to disclose a mistake you've made on your leadership journey, what you learned from it?
1: <laughs> I've made loads. Um, I think one of the most powerful, and, and this is a sort of individual example, um, for me, was uh, earlier on in my chief exec role here at DCHS, um, I had a uh, an executive colleague in a really senior role who was not performing very well. It was very difficult to get them to understand what it was that they weren't doing. They didn't seem very happy. And I I bottled it. I really lacked the courage at the time to to take it on and to have... The conversations, kind conversations I th- I've learned now at the right time with this individual, I worked round him, that put a cost on me. Uh, I made other people work round him as a cost to them and I think the organis- there was a cost to the organisation mm-hmm. and there was a cost to him and it, it didn't end well because in the end it kind of came to a, to a head and I'm not at all proud of... The fact that, you know, he didn't leave in a positive way. He wasn't supported to find the right role. And it it was really hard for me and everybody else in the organisation, most hard for him. So what I've really learned and I'm still trying to work on, and it's a massive issue for leadership right across our organisation and the wider NHS, is being compassionate doesn't mean not having the difficult conversations. And actually the kind, compassionate thing to do is to step up, and have the conversation, it's about how you have it. Um, I haven't had many examples in the last 10 years of how of when I've had to manage other people out of the roles that they're in, but the couple that I have at that senior level, I've done it much better, much earlier on, and people now are still good friends and settled into the right roles in other parts of the NHS or the public sector.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I've always felt that the compassionate culture is about... Creating an environment in which those difficult conversations are possible. Uh, exactly,
1: exactly. But I, that is quite challenging, and people don't always understand that. People, I think, still do equate compassionate a compassionate culture with being nice all the time, and it, it it's way more complicated than that, as you know.
0: Yeah. Is there a person or experience that you found inspirational during your career?
1: God, there's loads, and I'm inspired every day by the people that I work with, that one person who I've come across in the last year who I think is really inspirational is um, Donna Hall, Professor Donna Hall. She was um, the chief exec of Wigan Council. Um, She's now the chair at Bolton Foundation Trust, and she's also the chair of the new local government network, which is an independent think tank. And when she was at Wigan... She, in, in a time of really crippling austerity, she changed the whole way in which the council worked with the, the community in Wigan. It's called the Wigan Deal. Um, and and it, it, it is this kind of community paradigm about trying to get everybody in the, in the public service, health and care, fire service, etc., to work with people in their communities, in their places, from their perspective, build on what the community itself has got and can do with a really clear set of expectations about how public services will get alongside people and support them. I, I think I'm right in saying that Wigan is the only place where life expectancy has actually increased in the last 10 years and, and they did some truly transformational work and Donna now in a her NHS chair role is doing a lot of work within leadership development across the NHS because it, it goes back to where we were talking earlier on about that co-production about a really different yeah. mindset um, and for me that is our challenge over the next kind of three years.
0: I might look Donna up she's, for a she's future really, interview.
1: She's really fantastic.
0: So I'm really inspired by what you've just said, Tracy. I, I mean, sometimes I feel that the NHS system is so overwhelming that managers just become what they are because of the the, the system that's around them. And um, somehow you're offering a certain resistance to that, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think... Um so I see my role and that of other senior people in the organisation, the board, as being that that kind of umbrella that is trying to make sense of that stuff coming down, um, but, but not letting that become what we're about. We, we're not about delivering financial balance. Of course, that's important. We're not about hitting this target or doing that many contacts of district nursing, but it, we're about, what I said before, making a difference to mm. people's lives in Derbyshire and Derby City, but that... That is really challenging because I'm having to unlearn a whole set of behaviours that I've kind of carefully crafted over the last 15 years of my leadership career in the NHS. And more complicated than that, I'm I'm trying to support all of my colleagues to unlearn those behaviours because in a competitive kind of commissioner-provider environment, a lot of what we've been doing over the last 10 years is about counting things, negotiating contracts, making sure we're hitting this target. And that. of course, quality has been in there all the time. But but there's a lot of unlearning for us all to do. Yeah. We we've we've got to positions at chief exec level where we are in charge, in inverted commas, of a sovereign organisation. And actually, now we're realising if we keep working in separate silos across our health and care system, we're never going to deliver the change that our community needs us to. So we've got to break down all those barriers. And inevitably, the, the national frameworks we're working within are lagging. 2 or 3 years behind that. So it's it is really challenging and it's challenging for everybody right through all of our organizations and that needs a compassionate approach. It needs patience, it needs a lot of coaching, it needs lots of time where we can all get together and just explore our, what what feels uncomfortable around this and why and kind of re, restock our energy about back to that common purpose and get back out there and keep
0: trying so you 've all got NHS history if you like, but has it helped effectively having a clean sheet of paper with starting a new trust do you think
1: i think it I think it probably has i mean what an amazing privilege to be able to create something new and having the The consistency of leadership. I mean, we've had people retire and come back. We've had a new chief nurse and new medical director over the last year. But there's always been a consistent leadership, not just from me, but from other people, which I think has meant that we've had the time and and that stability to just keep going on this stuff Um, right from the beginning we were focused on our initial vision was about being the best provider of local healthcare and being a great place to work so we've always had that emphasis on how it feels to work in the organisation we've always recognised that as important.
0: Yeah I think stability you know it's something that's that's really underrated I yeah. think um, you know when I, when I look back on my corporate career probably the uh, I had a sort of 10-year purple period where everything went really well and it was within the context of an organisation where the organisation structure was very stable and everyone knew each other and had those great relationships.
1: I think that's changing in the NHS as well. There was always a sort of received wisdom that you did two or three years, then you moved on, you did two or three years, And, and actually an awful lot of chief execs don't survive two or three years. But it is changing and there's definitely something, particularly with this focus on place and about understanding the communities that you are supporting and working with, I, I never want to get past my sell-by date, and I'm, 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 trying, I'm always trying to be clear about what it is I've still got to offer. But I do think there is real benefit in that stability. And in fact, people like the King's Fund have done some interesting work to look at what characterises some of the highest performing NHS organisations. And there is a theme around stable senior
0: leadership. Mm. Do you have something that you'd still like to achieve at work?
1: I've got loads because, you know, as I say, I think we're really clear about what we want to do. And, you know, as the CQC have said, we're doing pretty well um, comparatively, but... We're not an organisation yet where every single person feels as great about working in DCHS as I do. Um, we've got issues about we've got a, we've got a, a gender pay gap that I'm really frustrated about and determined to do something about. I mean, how bizarre that the NHS workforce, the DCHS workforce, is overwhelmingly female, and yet we've still got a persistent gender pay gap. We've got issues that our uh, black and minority ethnic um, colleagues still are less likely to be happy in the way that they're treated, to feel that they're treated fairly. And we've still got huge potential around this community. You know, we've Mm. got 4,000 people. We spend £190 million in Derbyshire and and Derby City, a network of buildings, of assets, and we've only scratched the surface in terms of the contribution we can make to overall community health and wellbeing, Uh, By using those people, that money and those assets in a different way. Brilliant.
0: What does your self care regime look like?
1: So I, I mentioned um, before we started, I've, I, I have a long-term condition and I've had two really difficult years, a couple of very major uh, operations, which euphemistically labelled by the medical profession as life-changing. So I've I've had to work really hard on my self-care and be very flexible. So for example, the last six months have been about recovering from that surgery um, and learning to live with a hidden disability that I never expected to have and, um, and is quite challenging sometimes. Physically, I'm able to do more sometimes than others. I Nordic walk um, around the Peak District uh, and I try and swim two or three times a week at at an outdoor pool in Hathersidge. It's heated. Um, I love that pool. There is nothing better than a really cold nighttime swim at Hathersidge. And I have, I've actually been using our um, staff counselling service over the last couple of years, again, to help me kind of psychologically with just getting to grips with the lack of control. I I like control. And, you know, when you're faced with a long term condition, you've got absolutely no control. And I found that really challenging. So I've sought help from our psychology um, service to help me with that. Um, And as I said, I now work slightly part time. I do nine days every every fortnight. And that was part of my self-care regime, about recognising that I do need a bit of time and space to manage those other bits of my life.
0: That's quite courageous as well. I think the chief executive using the staff counselling Well,
1: I write to everybody on a Friday and I told them that I'd done it because I think you have to be authentic and you've got to be open. And the referrals went up by 40% uh, in the following three months. Now, they've settled down a bit, but... You know, I'm very open about my disability. I have a permanent stoma and ileostomy. And because I think I can, I can make a difference to the culture of the organisation by recognising and being open about the challenges that I've got, which gives permission for people to feel it's okay to talk about theirs. Yeah.
0: Now then, is is there a book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? So the...
1: The podcast that I most uh, often refer people to, I do a fair bit of mentoring, is one by Brené Brown. Do you know Brené Brown? I do know Brené Brown. And and you know then her TED talk about vulnerability, which I think is absolutely fantastic. But to be honest, pretty much anything that she's talking about in terms of um, the kind of call to courage, the dare to lead. I think she's really fantastic. And so I, a lot of what she talks about really, really chimes with me and my personal leadership development. Um, and so I would say she's the person I most often refer others to.
0: Right. Rising strong as well. That's another yeah. good one of hers. Yeah. Do you think the NHS as a whole is doing enough to create compassionate leaders?
1: So there's a huge amount of energy Going into the creation of compassionate leaders, it is the buzz phrase, and there seems a genuine recognition at a kind of national level that we have to create a culture in which it feels it feels good to come to work, jobs are doable, and people feel supported, and that's great. I worry that the approach from a national level can sometimes though just feel as though we're all just being told to be compassionate leaders now Mm -hmm. and measured back to what I said earlier on measured on the things that can be measured and you know try harder you're not being a compassionate leader enough so it sometimes doesn't feel as though we're being led in a compassionate way there's a bit of is it discongruence between what I experience coming down and what I'm being expected and required to lead within my own organisation, yes. time will tell.
0: Okay. You mentioned earlier that you mentor aspiring chief executives when within the NHS. What's your favourite question to ask them?
1: So I work on a, a year-long programme for um, a very small group of people who are assessed as being almost ready uh, to be chief execs. And um, it's a fantastic programme. One of the key elements of the program is to ensure that by the time people have finished it they can really clearly answer the question what is my leadership for mm. um, and that sounds a really simple question it's a very difficult one to answer and, and and working with people challenging myself you know you start off with it's about being compassionate it's about treating people you know in the way that you would like to be treated it's it's about being a, a good egg yeah but Get underneath what is it for is it about inclusion is it about social justice is it about and i think that the clearer you can you can help people get around that the more you just see them absolutely fly then in terms of developing their confidence and it's that framework that helps you manage the regulatory system stuff that you asked me about earlier on yeah helps you decide where you're going to stand uh, in all of that noise mm.
0: You've already said quite a bit about, I think, about what your leadership's for, but would you like to answer that question for yourself?
1: Uh, It is really challenging, and I sit in those programmes and think, it it would have been good if I'd had to do this earlier. Um, I think my leadership is for, it does relate back to what I've been talking about, I think it is for, it is in pursuit of social justice. It is about... Being part of a community where people are supported to thrive and not just survive. And whether people are thriving or surviving is not determined by the household that they were born into, the amount of money that they managed to earn, their levels of educational aspiration attainment. And I think I chose to work in the NHS because I have a a fundamental belief that, that the NHS is an absolutely core part of the a uh, couple of the potential that we've got as a country to develop a much more socially just society than
0: we've got and have you have you thought about where that comes from in yourself
1: yeah I have and uh, so both my parents worked in the public sector they worked in education education for uh, kids with special need I mean the, Used to be when my father first, when I, I first remember, he, he worked in a school, he was head of a school for maladjusted boys. Can you, I mean, how, um, so so I've, I've been brought up in a family that was working within public service and at university, I, you know, I remember coming to the end of my degree and, and getting overwhelmed by this milk round. I'd done a lot of work at university around things like women's rights, poverty, and being completely underwhelmed by, you know, KPMG, Pw, there's nothing wrong with those companies, but thinking about what is it that's going to get me out of bed every day. Um, and I just happened across, it was, a, it was a tutor whose husband was a doctor who said he looked at the NHS management training scheme, and it just seemed like a really fantastic match fit for me.
0: Are you an optimist about social justice? Because a lot, an awful lot of people right now are pretty pessimistic about it, aren't they?
1: um so so we're recording this a week before the election and no personally at the minute no i'm not objectively absolutely because if if we can't make more of a difference with what we've got and 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 within the care health and care sector if we can't do more with what we've got well i, I believe that we absolutely can and and i still believe i suppose what i'm optimistic about is no matter what the national position is um, and I'm not at all optimistic about that there is still a huge amount that we can do locally with that common purpose and and shared values and and if I wasn't I don't think I could come to work every day and I don't think I could build and try and build hope which is a really important part of my job at the minute build hope and maintain that hope that we can do this
0: hold that thought yeah Tracy I feel so privileged to have had this conversation you mentioned the election. If you ever want to stand for office after you've retired from the NHS, then you would be assured of my vote. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Redbox.